These last few weeks, we have been looking at the events surrounding the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus' family tree on December the 9th, Joseph last week, and today we turn our attention to the wise men. Now, a couple of points before we do that. Um, we don't know that there were three wise men, first of all. We know that they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the Bible nowhere mentions how many there were, maybe two, maybe three, maybe a dozen. We don't know. Nor were they kings, unlike what we sing. They were magi. They were astrologers. Astrology was born in the region somewhere around Babylon or Persia, about a thousand kilometers east of Israel, in the area that now straddles the border between Iraq and Iran. Now, astrologers sought to understand the movements of the heavenly bodies in terms of events on earth. And kings sought their counsel, and so these astrologers became counselors or advisors to the king. They were the king's wise men, men of prestige and of influence, but not themselves kings. So we three kings were just not sure about that. Uh, nor were these magi present at the stable. They found Jesus after considerable time, as we shall see. So I just want to say those things to clarify the traditional uh, Christmas imagery of three kings at the manger, as we have even in front of us now. But you know what? That's not bad. Put your, put your wise men at the manger scene for sure. Now, in the Gospels, only Matthew records the visit of the Magi. Matthew writes in chapter 2, verse 1, Now, after Jesus was born, after, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Again, we don't know exactly where they were from, only that they were from the east. Probably Babylonia or Persia, where Magi were an established and respected society. But again, we don't know exactly where, for sure. But in whatever land they called home, in the course of their observation of the heavens, something appeared in the night sky that they had never seen before. They, they believed that planets had both geographical and symbolic associations, and that their conjunctions with other planets would have signified different things. And whatever the Magi saw, they ascribed two important meanings to it. One, that it signified the birth of the king of the Jews, whatever they understood that to mean. And secondly, that this was no ordinary king. They certainly didn't travel around the Middle East paying honor every time a royal figure was born, which would have occurred with some regularity. But this time they did. Something about this star and how they interpreted its meaning compelled them to come and see and pay honor to this newborn king. So they made plans, packed up what they would need for the return trip, and this was no small undertaking. If they were from Babylon, this means embarking on a journey of a thousand kilometers each way, a journey of many months. They clearly attached enormous significance to the star and traveled, as we sing, over field and fountain, moor and mountain. This was an epic journey for them. The star did not guide them all the way to Jerusalem 
or on their journey. And so they guessed, very logically, that their destination would be Jerusalem, capital of the Jewish nation. So that's where they went. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they began making inquiries. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, of course, they assumed that making harmless inquiries about something that was common knowledge, but instead they were met with blank stares. No king has been born, as far as anyone knows. It's amazing how often, even today, God's people are oblivious to what he is doing. And far from the response that they expected, Matthew further records this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. This Herod is Herod the Great, not himself a Jew, but he'd been given the title King of the Jews by Mark Anthony and had that title confirmed later by Caesar Augustus. History knows Herod the Great as a cruel and paranoid despot. He had his favorite wife and several of his sons executed because he thought they posed a threat to his rule. And just before his death, he issued an order that when he died, a number of the leading men of the city would be executed so that there would be an, uh, a feeling of mourning when he died. So Magi appear in Jerusalem asking after the one who has been born with Herod's jealous, jealously guarded title, King of the Jews. So yes, Herod, now in his 70s and with failing health, was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with them. Because when Herod got disturbed about somebody going for his throne, paranoid violence was about to follow, which in this case it did. And so everybody was disturbed. Herod immediately begins to explore this threat. Before calling the Magi to him, he first calls the priests and the scripture experts and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So while the public is still speculating about what the Magi mean by king of the Jews, Herod acts, and he does so quickly. Maybe... Herod thinks that the reality of a Messiah is a possibility. Remember, he's not a Jew. But certainly, if others believe that a Messiah has been born, that means trouble for Herod. So either way, he's feeling that his rule is being threatened. So Herod tries to glean all the information that he can because knowledge is power. And the more information that he has, the better able he will be to deal with his threat. So the priests go back to an obscure passage from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5, where God speaks of one who will come to both rule and shepherd God's people. He will be a king. He will be strong. He will be good. And he will be born in Bethlehem. All right, thinks Herod. That's what I need to know. He sends the priests out of the room and has the magi brought to him. He summons them secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
secretly. I don't imagine that Herod wanted anyone else going to Bethlehem to seek this Messiah, this king. The more that things are kept under wraps, the better for Herod. And Herod also finds out the exact time that the star first appeared and presumably the exact time of the king whom they sought. And all of this while, Herod is friendly and engaging. He's a snake, but for all the magi know, he's genuinely excited and interested in their quest. Go to Bethlehem, he tells them, and search carefully for the child. When you find him, make sure and let me know, because I too, I want to go, I want to worship him. And Herod then is doing two things. He's hustling the magi out of town quickly, lest they stir up the people even more. And he's making plans to locate the child and have him killed. And he's duping the magi into doing his own detective work for him. And the magi leave excited at this new lead, Bethlehem. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So after such a long journey and the initial confusion and disappointment of coming to Jerusalem only to, have their, only to discover that nobody knows what they're talking about, their quest now is about to be fulfilled. And the star that first inspired their journey now appears again and leads them right to the place where Jesus is. Chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star again, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now notice that they find Jesus in a house, first of all, not in the stable anymore. Okay, remember, they've journeyed probably a thousand kilometers. Considerable time has gone past since the shepherds found Jesus in the stable. And Jesus is now a child, not the baby that the shepherds found. And baby and child in Greek are different words. Now they're finding a child in a house, not a baby in a stable. The Magi find Jesus with his mother Mary, maybe Joseph was at work. And what they do is really remarkable. Now remember, these are men of influence and prestige where they come from. They are used to being shown deference and respect. And yet, before this little child, born into a humble family in an unimportant village, what do these men do? They worship him. Literally, the word means they fell prostrate before him. And I can't help but imagine that Mary catches her breath at this, and probably did when the shepherds came to the stable before. She must be reminded again now that her little son is no ordinary child. Now these wealthy and powerful foreigners are lying face down on the floor before this one whom she has just spoon-fed, as it were. And then to her even greater astonishment, they call in their servants who bring in from their pack animals small chests and expensive vials. And at a nod from their masters, the servants unwrap and open the gifts and Mary gapes open-mouthed at what she now sees. Gold, 
and frankincense and myrrh. These were costly and elegant gifts. And the Bible says that they were given out of the treasure of the wise men. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, for Mary from Little Nazareth, this would represent more wealth than she had ever seen. Imagine somebody living in government-subsidized housing, scraping by from paycheck to paycheck. And suddenly, they're visited by a wealthy foreigner who presents them with a million dollars in bearer bonds and a small sack of diamonds. That's kind of what's happening to Mary. And the Magi present these gifts not to Mary, but to the child. I don't know if they told Mary then about her, their journey. don't know if they told her about their interview with Herod. But before they can return to Jerusalem to tell Herod that they had indeed found the child, they're warned in a dream, presumably by an angel, not to go back to Herod. So they take another route out of Bethlehem and swing wide of Jerusalem and go home. Shortly after that, an angel tells Joseph and Mary to take, tells Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt, out of the country, to preserve the child's life. And now the gifts of the Magi make sense, don't they? The gold finances the trip. The myrrh and the frankincense, easily portable, will be sold in Egypt and allow them to establish themselves. But people sometimes take these gifts and assign meanings to them, as in the carol, We Three Kings, gold for his kingship, incense representing prayer and worship, myrrh was a perfume used in embalming somebody getting ready for burial, and so that Jesus' death is alluded to. But we don't need to import a symbolic meaning to these gifts, meanings, by the way, that the Bible never hints at. When we focus on the symbolic meanings that might be there, we miss the plain and the central meaning of the text, which is these magi recognize that Jesus is king, and they give him gifts worthy to honor a king. And these are gifts of enormous value and will prove themselves such to Mary and Joseph in the very near future. And sure enough, when Herod realizes that the magi are not coming back, he's been outwitted, the Bible says, he is furious. And based on what the Magi have told him about when they first saw the star, and probably allowing for some flex time, Herod orders the execution of every male child two years and younger in Bethlehem and vicinity, which probably was as many as a couple of dozen for a small town. Herod shows himself for the loathsome man that he is. And this is entirely in character what, with what we know about him from history. So Joseph and Mary escape and take Jesus safely to Egypt. The Magi are on their long journey home, and within a year, 4 BC, Herod is dead. Now, this chapter of the story in which the Magi are players is relatively short, only 12 verses. It's a cameo role. 
And we usually read through it kind of quickly without giving it much thought. But it's quite a remarkable story. And the experience of the wise men is likewise remarkable. Now, whenever I look at a scripture passage, I always ask the question, why is this here? A baby is born, shepherds come. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised in the temple. Then we meet him in the temple as a 12-year-old. So between his eighth day and his 12th year, the only episode that the gospel writers include is this one. Why do they do that? Why is this here? Have you ever asked that about a passage of Scripture? Why is this here? Why did God, in all of the history from Adam forward, why did God make sure that this part got in? Why is the wise man's story in the gospel accounts? As you read through the gospel of Matthew, you notice that there is one thread that ties the whole gospel together. Or rather, there are two threads woven together that go through the whole gospel. It is the kingdom of God and Jesus as king of that kingdom. The Old Testament foretold the coming of a king from the line of David. Okay, we saw the link of Jesus to the line of David in chapter 1. But that link, the genealogy, just sets the stage for everything that is to come. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, for example, with the Beatitudes, which are bookended with references to the kingdom of God. The life of Jesus demonstrated his sovereignty as he exercised lordship over disease and demons in nature. Jesus was called the Son of David, which was a particularly royal name for the expected Messiah as a descendant of Israel's greatest king. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem had all of the overtones of a coronation, something that was not lost on his enemies. At his trial, the charge they brought against him was one of treason. And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus was mocked for his kingship in chapter 27, verses 29 and 42. He's given a crown of thorns to wear. Pontius Pilate fixes a sign on the cross over Jesus' head. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And when we first meet Jesus in Matthew, he is worshipped by ones who came seeking the king of the Jews. And so this phrase, king of the Jews, brackets Jesus' life in Matthew. Almost. Is Jesus just the king of the Jews? Matthew actually ends his gospel with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This, this is Christ the King. The child in the manger is the king in whom resides all authority in heaven and earth. Now, I know that that gets said a lot at Christmas time. Sounds cliched. We sing it. We say it. But don't miss it. It's worth saying again. Hear it again for the first time. The child in the manger 
is the one in whom resides all authority in heaven and on earth. The word heaven, by the way, is a plural word and often usually means in the scriptures the heavens. In other words, the universe. All authority in heaven and in the heavens and on earth. What is not included? Nothing is not included. What is included? You. Me. Was Jesus a cute baby? Maybe. Most are, though not all. And it's fine for us to feel a certain tenderness as we kneel at the manger in the season. But we don't kneel at the manger just to get a closer look. As we come to the manger, we are gazing upon our king, and so we kneel. And when we get up from the manger on December the 26th, what then? Well, we either live as if Jesus were a king, or we don't. There's no halfway. It's like, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. Either he's king or he's not. Now pause and think about that for a moment. Am I recognizing Jesus' utter and unqualified authority over me? Am I recognizing Jesus' utter and unqualified authority over me? I'm not asking, have I made Jesus king of my life? We don't get to decide the yes or no to that question. He is. I'm not asking, have I invited Jesus to be king of my life? Jesus is not king of your life with your permission. And nor am I asking, is there any part of your life that I need to surrender to Jesus' kingship? That question makes us think small so that we can't see the forest for the trees. Jesus doesn't ask for this part or that part. Your life and your very self unconditionally belong to him. What we're asking is, am I recognizing Jesus' utter and unqualified authority over my life? Now, there's two different ways that you could answer that question. And you could put it this way. One of the answers is yes. The other answer is no. Now, for many of you, I think, you'll be tempted to answer no when your answer is yes. You recognize your weakness and think that's rebellion. And yet you love him and you don't dispute his kingship. You're hard on yourself because you think you're just not trying hard enough without recognizing that it's precisely Jesus, precisely Jesus' authority in your life that lifts you off the ground when you fall, lifts you halfway so you can kneel and kiss his hand, and then all the way so you can walk again. Don't let anyone, including yourself, deceive you. Jesus is your king and you know it. So don't say no when you mean yes. For others of you, you'll be tempted to answer yes 
when your answer really is no. You've been part of Christian culture for a long time. You've attended church for years. But your life in no way demonstrates any awareness or desire for Jesus to be master of anything in your life. Church may cross your mind once in a while, but Jesus never does. And if you really understood Jesus' claim to everything that you are and do and own, you would resent it. Don't let anyone, including yourself, deceive you. You're a rebel. And if you don't yet realize that this baby in the manger claims as your own your full allegiance, your utter and unreserved devotion, your very life lived for his glory, then you don't get Christmas. Coming from the glory of heaven, born to die for the sins of the world, to be raised from the dead, exalted to reign as king forever. And I heard somebody say this just a couple of weeks ago. This is such a great story, and yet people think that's not a great enough story. Let's add a Santa Claus and some elves in a tree. Now it's a great story. Now, I decorate a tree, and I sing Santa songs, and I give presents. They contribute to my enjoyment of the season, but they add nothing to the story. And if they were removed, Christmas would still be complete. It would still be an honoring of the most stunning event that has ever happened. A friend of mine said years ago that it was the incarnation that most amazed him. God, as a man dying on the cross, he could imagine. God rising from the dead would not surprise him. But what he found most incredible was the idea of God becoming a human, a baby, in the first place. Once that happened, the rest of it made sense. But the reality of the maker and supreme master of everyone, of everything, the one whose glory is so overwhelming that the universe is a cheap mock-up in comparison, became human, became baby, born in a stable. Now, no matter what we sing or say at this time of year, none of us understands really what happened on that silent, holy night. As I typed that last sentence, I was listening to Christmas music, and the very line sung as I typed this was, Jesus, your king, is born. Well, people have tried, of course, to do several things with Jesus' kingship. They refuse to acknowledge his kingship, and so they reject him. Get him right out of your life. Herod was disturbed and said, there is only one king, and that king is me. No one sits on the throne but me. Nobody has authority in my life but me. And people will resort to violence to push Jesus out of their lives, and sometimes not only away from themselves, but away from others. Atheists might be verbally violent, writing or speaking with venom and with contempt about people's belief in Jesus. Many resort to violence physically and imprison or kill anyone who believes in Jesus. We call that persecution. And the first persecution of people because of Jesus 
happened when Herod had babies killed in an attempt to preserve his own throne. And persecution has thrived ever since. People try to reject his kingship. Others ignore him entirely. Those in Jerusalem told that the Messiah king had been born were also disturbed, but there's no indication that even one of them journeyed to Bethlehem with the wise men. Of course, even today, many don't hate Jesus, many don't oppose Jesus, but they ignore him. If you want to be Christian, it's fine for you, but it's not for me. I'll give you two examples from my own experience. I watched someone get baptized and give his testimony, but within a few years, he was no longer attending church anywhere I knew. And when I asked him about his faith, he just shrugged and said, ah, it's not working for me anymore. And I pressed him and I said, you were baptized and you shared that you were going to live your life in obedience and love to Jesus. I said, what about that? Is he Lord or is he not Lord? And the best answer he could give was just to say again, "Ah, it's just not working for me right now. The other example comes from a couple who was attending church that I knew, and she was a believer and he was not. And I asked him about that once after he had attended church for a long time and heard lots of Bible teaching. And his answer was this. You know, Christianity might be true, but I'm not going to take the trouble to explore it. That answer stuns me, quite frankly. There might be a God who made me. I might have sinned against him and incurred his judgment. There might be a heaven. There might be a hell. I might be destined for one or the other. There There might be somebody who claims by creating me claims complete ownership and worship of all that I am. Nah, but, nah, whatever. I don't have time. I don't get that. Reject or ignore. And interestingly, it is the magi, foreigners, not God's chosen people, who are models for us as to how we respond to Jesus' kingship. Look what they do. They put their lives on hold for several months, maybe even a year or more, to seek this king. They didn't fully understand, certainly, but they knew enough to know that this king of the Jews was no ordinary king. Right? Why else would they make such a point of traveling such a great distance at such, such expense and inconvenience to honor him? Like I said, they didn't travel around to see every royal birth, but they did this time. This baby, they did come to see. And here's the thing. If Jesus is king, then we order our lives around him, not the other way around. And then when the Magi saw him, they did two things. And we Christians often try to reduce it to one. But it's two things. They worshiped. And they gave him their treasures. We worship, but we're hesitant to give our treasures. I'm not talking about money. Though in our culture, and for many of us, that's a real treasure, a real idol. But we have other treasures too. What's most important to you? Sports. 
leisure, relationships, children, health, work. Do you acknowledge these belong to Jesus? Your body, your time, your life. So I'll sing my heart out on Sunday, but Jesus gets no more time than that in my everyday. I can afford to tithe. I can't afford to tithe to God's work, but I'll keep buying my toys and equipment. I'll keep indulging this little habit, habit because God understands, and what's the harm? The rest of my life is pretty good. I'll pray regularly and fervently, but I'm not going to forgive so-and-so. And I won't deal with my habit of talking negatively about people in their absences. Acknowledging the kingship of Jesus means saying, yeah, I know that these treasures are yours. And without recognizing Jesus' ownership of our treasures, we have not worshipped. We might sing, but by itself, that's not worship. We might go to church every week, but by itself, that's not worship. We might pray every day, but by itself, that is not worship. Only in the context of a holy, surrendered life can these things be considered anything close to worship because they're part of a life that is in its entirety worship. Am I recognizing Jesus' utter and unqualified authority over me? He is the Son of God. He is the one who reigns over heaven and earth eternally. And if you don't get that, then it is worth the journey of a thousand miles or more, worth putting everything on hold to seek him, to explore. It is the most important thing that you could ever do. Come to him, then, as ruler, for he is both strong and he is good. Under his lordship is where fullness of life is experienced. If you do name Jesus as king, then kneel at the manger this Christmas. Jesus, your king, is born. Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. Amen.